The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Business. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, we tackle an issue that shaped the election and which is already in the sights of this new government, immigration. We've had an unprecedented number of new arrivals to the UK. How have they affected the economy? What's been the impact on wages? And will politicians really curb new arrivals? This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio, we've got The Guardian's Home Affairs editor, Alan Travis, columnist Gary Young, and Jane Wills, co-author of a new book, Global Cities at Work, New Migrant Divisions of Labour. Alan, let's come to you first. Um, This country's got a long history of immigration. What makes the last few years so different? Well, I think the scale, the numbers of, of who have come, uh, since the accession of the AA EU states, Poland and the rest, in 2004, we only have a cumulative number of reaching about three quarters of a million of people who have come since uh, 2004, but that doesn't actually take account of those who went home. But also we've seen a new type of immigration from previous generations in that it's more like kind of a short-term cyclical kind of uh, migration where people have come for three or four months each year to do a specific job and then have gone home again. Most are young, in their 20s, and are probably quite well-educated backgrounds. And in that sense, the numbers are different. But also the immigration has reached areas of parts of the country that haven't been traditional homes of immigration. So parts of the West Country, particularly East Anglia, Lincolnshire, where there's no tradition of immigration and where the sudden appearance of a Polish shop on the high street has a, a big cultural impact compared to, say, a place like London, Manchester, Liverpool, where a century of immigration, as you point out, is no surprise. Gary, the, the kind of the iconic image of post-war immigration is Windrush and people coming here to settle, as, as Alan's pointing out, and kind of new immigration sort of comes off uh, EasyJet or Ryanair flight and might go back after a couple of years. How does that change the culture of Britain? How, how the British adapted to that? Well, one interesting way to uh, look at that is if we... You think back to Gillian Duffy in that moment where she goes out for a loaf of bread and walks into the election campaign and she says she's worried about all of these Eastern European immigrants. And if you look at Rochdale as a town, it's um, one-fifth Muslim and had a 50% increase in Bengalis over 10 years. So the fact that Mrs Duffy is worried about European immigration actually tells you something about how our understanding of what immigration is about and what it's for has changed for the very reasons that Alan has actually just kind of uh, uh, pointed out, really, that, uh, first of all, if you think of Windrush... By the way, when people came then, they thought they were coming for a few years and they ended up staying an awful lot longer. But race and immigration, often in polling, would be together. So the race of people and the the colour of people and the movement of people were combined in people's minds. So race and immigration were part of the same thing. That's no longer true because the biggest increase in people has been uh, has been white people and that's forced a shift in our understanding of uh, what it's about but also the geographical differences that it's no longer just big cities and certain areas of big cities but villages and small towns and, and rural areas. E- yeah. exactly mm-hmm. and so that's forced a, a national conversation as opposed to a national panic and a, a regional experience it's now also a national experience Jane, when they get out to Peterborough or Slough, what happens to these new migrants? Well, I think before we get to that, it's more that the shift has been in the kinds of people that are coming, as Alan said, mm. but the diversity of countries from which people come has exploded extraordinarily. So we, in our research, looked at one building at Canary Wharf 
one cleaning contract and we found of those 105 workers, there were 29 different countries of origin. So whereas Gary says when the Windrush generation arrived, people thought they weren't staying, we had a notion that immigration was about the ex-colonies largely, but that has really gone and the diversity's exploded. So we get immigrants from a huge array of different countries. When people arrive in cities like Peterborough yeah. and small towns, often it's the white immigrants that are moving to those places rather more than others. And they'll be often turning up through labour agencies in all the low-wage jobs in those areas. Let's hear what economists have got to say about immigration. We'll hear from an immigration sceptic, Bob Rowfawn from King's College, Cambridge, in a moment. But first, here's Tim Finch from the Institute for Public Policy Research. Most economists, pretty much the whole of them, will say this very uh, open and flexible and high level of migration has been good for the British economy. It's contributed uh, to growth and, and entrepreneurialism. In many cases, by and large, they have been coming in to do extra jobs created within the economy, some, some of which other migrants have created through their own entrepreneurialism, or they've been doing jobs that we don't want to do. And the classic examples that are the things like fruit picking in the fields, uh, which are often low paid and in inconvenient locations for the British long-term unemployed, so the migrant people come in and do it, or even the sort of jobs we see in cities like London, where you, can, you can't you can buy a coffee or a, or a, or a beer these days and, and, and be served by anybody other than a young migrant. They'll do those jobs because they want to come to London to have a good experience. The pay's not great, the prospects aren't great, but that's not really what they're worrying about. I think there have been some negative effects down the lower end of the labour market. I think most studies suggest this, that people at the bottom end of the labour market have suffered to some degree. The effects that people have discovered by research, people like Dustman and others, are pretty small. Now, you have to realise that those studies were done against a background of fairly strong overall labour demand up until around 2008, basically. It's not clear whether those studies would really be applicable now in a recession period when there's quite a big surplus of, of willing and able workers available. Bob Rothorn there. Alan, let's come back to you. Bob Rothorn raises quite a good point there about we had our, our, our big ex- experience of the last phase of immigration was largely during an economic boom. Now in a recession, how does that change things? Well, the first thing that's changed is that the flow of the migrants to Britain has fallen sharply. So three years ago, we had a net migration figure. That's, that covers the number of people coming here against and takes into account the numbers who are leaving to live abroad for a long time has fallen from about 250,000 net three or four years ago to 160,000 net flow 18 months ago to on the latest figures about 140,000 end of 2009 and the first quarter of this year seems to be continuing that trend so in that respect the first thing is that fewer migrants are coming in terms of the labor market itself uh, it's possible that although we had some reports earlier this week of uh, small numbers of East European migrants appearing home amongst the homeless people for the first time on the streets. They don't seem to be in very large numbers. For the first time, in the first quarter of this year, more East European migrants are going home than came to Britain. So we're seeing that flow begin to reverse. Gary, we often hear this phrase, the white working class, and that immigration is meant to be terribly bad for the white working class. But in amongst this working class, people who were already here before the immigrants came over were Pakistanis, Punjabis, you know, lots of people from, from what we think of as the Commonwealth. How's those sort of local tensions in places like Peterborough work themselves out? Well, one of the things it seems to have shown, and uh, this, was, this was clear in the election, at least symbolically, 
was that non-white people, many of them, have been drawn into the narrative of kind of localism and are counted among the indigenous. So during the election, there was the Cameron statement about, you know, I met a black man in, I can't remember where it was that he met Portsmouth. Him, Portsmouth. In the debates, they called on black people to talk about uh, immigration. And so because that at one time, apparently unlockable connection between immigration and race has been broken, it means that different kinds of non-white people can travel between those conversations, some seeing themselves as uh, as uh, immigrant and others seeing themselves as, as local and therefore talking about immigrants as though they are others. I don't think that would have been the case 10, ten years ago. Let's hear from Anastasia Duvall. She's deputy head of the think tank Civitas. One of the big concerns, I think, of the Labour government's approach was that it seemed to be saying, although perhaps implicitly and not explicitly, that there are jobs which were not regarded as being good enough for people who were British or people who had lived in Britain, Indigenous people, as it were, but were okay for immigrants. And I think that that's been a very difficult position. It doesn't at all reconcile with equal opportunities approach. And it's actually a a, a very oddly anti integration and anti I think multiculturalism approach I think that one of the things we do need to think carefully about is how we can reconcile immigration with high unemployment rates and I think that that is something which is a practical issue we do want to make sure that what we don't have are immigrants who are not able to participate in society because they aren't able to work and therefore are kind of kept in a a perhaps stagnant state of benefit dependency which really isn't going to have a positive impact on their life chances and really is going to thwart theirs and perhaps their future families integration and life chances for the future. Anastasia Duval from Civitas there. Jane, she raises a good point in that clip. We normally, when we talk about the the new phase of immigration, we talk about Polish plumbers and people who come over to do work that's quite profitable for them. But the kind of picture she's painting there is a lot closer to some of the stories in your book of people who are right at the bottom of the Labour pole and have to do really quite atrocious work in atrocious conditions. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. We've met lots of people who've got two or three jobs. They're working 60, 70 hours a week at the minimum wage or just above to put enough food on the table. And I think that's the big thing that's never spoken about in the immigration debate. It's about the quality of jobs. And these jobs are not living wage jobs. A living wage in London now is £7.85 an hour. And the vast majority of the jobs are nothing like that in terms of pay. So how significant is that as a proportion of the sort of immigration case studies that you've been looking at? It's almost universal. I think we found 7% of the migrant workers we interviewed in low-end jobs getting the living wage. So So, 93% weren't? Yeah. And in London, official statistics show about half a million jobs are in that gap between the minimum wage, which employers do respect in the main, and the living wage, what you need to live. And so any worker who's able to get benefits to top up their income at home is often better off claiming benefits than going to work. And this is the big unspoken issue at the heart of immigration, because people are doing these jobs because it makes sense for them to do them because they've got no access to the benefit system. And those people who have got access, it often makes more sense to stay at home. Are they coming over expressly to do these kinds of jobs or have they sort of been in this country already and then they've ended up in these jobs? It's quite complicated. Quite significant numbers come as students. So they get into this as international students, supporting themselves while they're studying. Others come because their friends and family have told them there's job opportunities. Others come as tourists and kind of find themselves in these jobs. It's a, it's a, a very mixed route into this kind of employment. 
Uh, Jane, how would that change if they were to raise the minimum wage so that it was a living wage? I think that would make the biggest difference to this whole debate because if we made these jobs living wage jobs, they would be attractive to what Gordon Brown calls British workers. Or in London, the hundreds of thousands of people who are not in work would then see that work might pay for them. And until we tackle that issue, we're not going to get anywhere in terms of unemployment and really dealing with immigration rates that concern people. I'm a bit concerned just seeing immigration in that way. First of all, I'd say that it was, it's true that there's a lot of exploited, low-wage economy, in, especially in the hidden economy amongst employment of illegal migrants in low-wage jobs. We also, it's important to stress that migration in this country is also largely in uh, middle class, in the financial services area, and is just as likely to be a South African uh, stockbroker working in a city finance house on a very large salary as someone picking uh, fruit in uh, East Anglia or working in a food processing factory. I'm not so sure about this kind of, you can get into the argument about the lump of labour fallacy about the number of jobs to go round. Um, you could say a labor, one of labour's achievements was to maintain the national minimum wage in those jobs and one of their failures was to implement the EU agency directive which would have ensured the way those people were employed in those jobs with a lot more protections and with a, a much a much higher threshold. I'm not so sure that if you raise the conditions and payment and, and it, the cost of those jobs that they will then be taken by British workers and there's some kind of one-for-one replacement there. I'm less persuaded about that. But undoubtedly, uh, the whole question of the exploitation of illegal workers and illegal migrants in Britain through gang masters and licensing authority and the scandals that have been documented over the years is a hidden economy that undermines, uh, and you're quite right to point that out, that undermines the legal job market in that sense. But I think what's interesting in the debate now is that this is becoming increasingly linked with a push to uh, increase the skills of the British workforce and particularly deal with the really big, huge problem of teenage unemployment mm. and uh, teenagers leaving school and not having any, any joints at all, being a, you know, not in employment, education or training. And I think that is a, is a new pressure, which is interesting that the immigration points-based system try and how it reacts to that will be interesting mm. to watch. Jane, your view of immigration is too dystopian. <laughs> well, Alan's right. At the top end of the labour market, immigration is also playing a critical role. And that's why in our book we talk about new migrant divisions of labour, which are happening at the top of the economy and at the bottom, interestingly. So in Canary Wharf, again, you find a very international workforce during the day doing the top end, the global elite, often Princeton educated and so on, so flying around the world for their education and their training. Those two groups of people can often talk to each other. They're speaking Spanish to each other if they do encounter each other. Um, And what's interesting in a way is what's fallen out in the middle, which were the jobs that maybe the white working class you were talking about would have gone into in Dagenham and places like that where there were manufacturing jobs. So as our labour markets change and there's been this growth at the top and the bottom, it's interesting that you see migrants populating both ends of of the labour market. And for the NEETs that Alan was talking about, I think we do really need to address labour standards because for young school leavers, leaving school without qualifications, they have to compete with migrants at the bottom end of the labour market. And so unless we do something to improve labour standards, career prospects, training in those jobs, it's going to be very hard for those young people to make a way for themselves. So even in something like retail, retail doesn't pay a living wage in London. And these are jobs that you would think a young school leaver might want to go into. One thing that's very interesting for me here, having been in the States for quite a long time, is coming back to this new reality, which is that any conversation about stopping immigration can't deal with a large amount of the immigration that we're talking about because it's EU 
immigration. And so some of those things, some of those certainties that we might have had or some of the levers that Britain might have had no longer exist. It may now always be true that a young, uneducated school leaver will have to compete with Slovenian 20-year-olds and people from Poland and Latvia and, uh, and so on. And it may be that they then decide that they're going to travel to Belgium and pick someone else's fruit. I mean, the way that we now think about people from elsewhere and people from here has to change in that new reality. That's very interesting. Well, I'd like to ask Gary, because Gary's been living in the States for a number of years before and has only recently returned, is that I think that um, labour mobility in Europe is about only a fifth mm. of the level of labour mobility mm. in the United States. And it seems to me, experience in the United States is that no one thinks twice about moving from uh, 3,000 miles in order to go to work and will happily uproot their family. And I wonder whether the immigration debate in the States is framed in that way at all, of these people coming from the East Coast taking out jobs here in Wisconsin, <laughs> as opposed to these people from Mexico. It's only framed in the extra United, United mm. States fashion, or should we be in Europe be thinking more in terms of labour mobility rather than immigration, uh, mm. in terms of the way we talk about this debate? I mean, it's a very good question. I mean, because first of all, because of the uh, credit crunch and the housing crisis, labour mobility has had to kind of come down very recently in the States, People can't move because they can't sell their houses. But there is, there are kind of two separate and connected debates that do happen. And one is of people coming from outside, uh, which is primarily people coming uh, from Mexico and, uh, and the South. And then the other is this kind of migration, which was towards Nevada, Florida, Arizona, and so on, but which actually was part of the problem with the housing crisis. There is a discussion about internal migration in the States, quite an intense one. You know, Detroit is kind of disappearing, and now there are kind of whole areas of housing in, in, around Las Vegas that no longer make any sense because people can't afford to keep them. But somehow those two conversations aren't joined up and actually kind of they should be. And I think we not that we're United States or Europe, not yet, but that we do have to think more in terms of if things aren't working out for me here, maybe I'm going to go to Lisbon. Uh, maybe I'm going to go somewhere else. There is obviously there's a language there is a, there is a language issue there, but it's well, a language a big problem issue. for the British. Well, but that's it. It's a language well, it's, issue. It's, no, that's very interesting because in terms of uh, the current debates over a limit and the points-based system, the, one of the pinch points in the points-based system is uh, the social care sector about to be exempted from Tier 2, so you will no longer be able to recruit people from outside Europe mm-hmm. to uh, work in uh, old people's home in Shropshire. And what the social care homeowners say is that actually, uh, and, that, and the government is saying to them, surely you can recruit people from within Europe to do these jobs. And they say, no, people from the Philippines or wherever speak much better English mm. than people from Poland or Romania. And that's a key skill to have to work in all people's home. You can't just have people coming into the room, cleaning the room, leaving the meal behind and saying absolutely nothing. They need to talk to people. That's what the job's about. And they want a, an exemption for people from the Philippines to be able to come in and bring care workers in as skilled cared workers. And in a sense, the debate in Europe is in Britain is upside down compared to the United mm. States, where we start from a fused fusion of the debate. And you're saying it's, it's separated. And I just wondered if the debate in Britain would become more graduated and more within Europe, it'll gradually become accepted that you can move to Italy or, or Germany, as we have done for years in the construction and engineering industries. Uh, the other the other example at the moment is the Bangladeshi catering industry, where they've had protest marches and rallies in Trafalgar Square because all those curry houses are sustained by bringing over Bangladeshi chefs, usually the third cousin or whatever, and they're being banned now and told that they're going to have to, have to train British kids 
old Poles. Indeed, there's a East, in East Finchley, North London, there's a particular curry house which has two Polish chefs, which is handed out as an example of how Eastern Europeans can fill the roles <laughs> of providing curry chefs. And there's quite interesting uh, examples. What in do that you they, think of that? They, they, they turn that, the debates upside down. Is that yeah. a good initiative? Well, I think it probably is because I think in most cases they're bringing over the third cousin from uh, Bangladesh from because Chilet, they because yeah. they're not going to pay them very much at all. And indeed, it's in the family, and therefore it's cheap. It really is cheap labour, and they're not sense. necessarily any good at cooking either. The idea that only Bangladeshis can cook a good curry is obviously yeah. a controversial point of view. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to move from the economics to the politics, uh, and I'm very glad, Jane, that you mentioned Dagenham, because uh, as if by magic, here's John Crudders, Labour MP for Dagenham. If you look, for example, with the borough I partly represent in the borough of Barking and Dagenham, I think it's been the, one of the fastest changing communities in Britain over the last 10 years, not least because it's the lowest cost housing market in Greater London. Um, and as house prices have gone sort of exponentially through the ceiling, there's been an ever wider search for low-cost housing. It's attracted extraordinary flows of migrants into the area, um, just as my family did when they come from Ireland. They go in search of low-cost housing. And that's created a rapidly changing community, which has been difficult because, you know, there hasn't been any real-time flow of resources to compensate for some of this growth in the community just in terms of access to public services. So there's a sense that it's a zero-sum game in terms of access to health or education and then other more pernicious political forces have come in and tried to pitch one group of people against another. They've perpetuated certain urban myths. And at the same time, you haven't had a government which is taking the sting out of this materially through the flow of resources, through the building of housing, through protecting people at work. And therefore, it's allowed migration to be such a toxic political currency in terms of you know, local community cohesion. Gary, in, in the course of this discussion, it's sounded oftentimes as though the impact of immigration upon people who are already living here over the last decade has been relatively benign. And yet John Crudders is pointing out that politically that it's actually led to often in places like Dagenham quite a pernicious discussion. What do you think? Well, I think that I think it has led to a pernicious discussion. And the reason why, I think, is because there hasn't been an honest debate about immigration. And I don't think that the honest debate is necessarily just one about immigration controls. I think it's one about globalisation. So um, what, would, what would an honest debate look like, without it sounding too common? Room? No, it would, it would say that half of the world is living off less than $2 a day. And so people are going to want to come here. If we are going to deal with that sensibly, we have to look at foreign aid. We have to look at things like climate change, because that's one of the things that forces people to move. Because large numbers of people actually don't want to move they have to move in order to eat. If you build a 20-foot fence to keep people out, a hungry person will build a 21-foot ladder to get in. So as long as there are these massive inequalities in wealth around the world, this is going to be an issue for us, first of all. Secondly, this is part of our European experience. Uh, This is something that we've signed up for. That doesn't mean that we can't turn the clock back in some ways if if uh, we wanted to, but that would be very difficult and would come with a lot of other kinds of uh, of pain. People kind of wake up one day. This is my imagination about Mrs Duffy that she kind of she goes shopping one day, doesn't end up on TV, but ends up seeing some Polish supermarket and thinking, where did that come from? How did that happen? What is going on? And then, you know, a little bit later, her grandchildren are at school and there's a large number of people who don't speak English in their school. These things do have to be um, explained to people. And it's impossible to talk about immigration in this country without talking about what's going on outside this country. And that some of those things are trade policy 
uh, our foreign aid, but also our foreign policy. More than half of all refugees under UNHCR remit come from Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, there were always a lot of um, refugees from Afghanistan anyway. But those things would have to be part of an honest conversation about immigration and why people want to come here and what we would need to do in order to cope with that. The other thing that would have to be discussed is the strain on public services. I mean, you can't have a school that once had 200 people and now has 300 people and there not be a problem. You know, we also have to talk about that. But to talk about the strain on public services without talking about why there's a strain, I think leads to a very dishonest conversation in which people get scapegoated. Alan, it's all very well, Gary, talking about globalisation and climate change and all those big things. But when I leaf through the Daily Mail, for instance, all they talk about is a strain on so local services in particular areas. Yeah, I think it's one of the one of the failures of the Liberal left in the... Uh, the early 2000s when David Blunkett was Home Secretary and he made the decision to uh, do without any transitional controls on Polish migration to Britain. He at the same time talked about uh, having to cope and deal with the pressures on local housing, on GP surgeries and education. And the problem was that David Blunkett couldn't resist winding up the Liberal left at the same time. And so he used the swamping word and uh, the whole thing got uh, boiled down in a huge row over whether or not uh, Blunkett was some proto-Thatcherite on immigration or not. When he was actually trying to address a real problem but unfortunately because of the political row he never made any headway in cross-government in actually meeting the extra and planning for the demands of where migrants went which meant that when everyone came there has been and is a huge problem uh, of pressure on local housing education policing and so on which only in the last two or three years has the government began to get to grips with in terms of trying to plan to meet that rapid population change in those areas which has caused such uncertainty. The other major fact, I think, the poison in the debate is the existence in Britain of 400,000 plus illegal migrants, many of whom are the product of uh, the complete breakdown in the asylum system in the early 2000s, who came here on the breakup of uh, Yugoslavia and more recently Iraq and Afghanistan, as uh, Gary mentioned. And I think until the position of those people is regularised in the way there will always be a local narrative whereby they are seen as a problem in some respect, a corrosive or criminalising influence. And I think it's essential to, on the second point, would be to give them some kind of pathway to citizenship and regularising their position that would start to uh, be able to sort out this debate. Jane, whether it's Duffy Gates or whether it's uh, the way Labour are currently talking about immigration or whether it's Tories, it looks as though the kind of the, the decade we've been through has been agreed by the sort of political classes that that mass immigration thing was a bit of a mistake and they didn't really properly plan for it and it's all had a terrible impact. Do you think that's true? Not at all, no. I think it's true that the political debate, that's where mm. the political debate's gone, but I don't think the reality So how far is, is it from the reality? But well, the reality is, as we've talked about in a sense, and Gary talked about the big picture about immigration that's here to stay. There's no way that the borders can be shut, even if we wanted to shut them. But what's interesting is the way that the impact of that is very uneven. So for some people in Britain, they've benefited enormously from immigration and they continue to do so. And for other communities, it has been much, much tougher. So the costs and benefits of immigration are allocated differently to different areas of the country and to different people within those areas of the country. So it is classically the areas of low housing cost where people are more able to move, where people are already living pretty close to the breadline that feel it 
more acutely, and that's a fact. So in a way, polit- the Labour Party belatedly woke up to that at Duffygate, but then their reaction to that is to say, oh, we were too soft on immigration, rather than to say we didn't do enough for those communities to really think about, as Alan yeah, said, I planning. Think, I also think that Duffygate also has, I think, taken the wrong symbolic uh, attitude inside the Labour leadership context. It's all been treated by uh, the Labour leadership contenders as if immigration was the killer mm. fact in the election mm. that lost Labour the election. Well, Labour fought the 2005 general election on exactly the same policies at the height of the wave of migration, mm. and they didn't lose the election. I yeah. think Duffygate yeah. had far more to do with the personal failings and characteristics of Gordon Brown as a Prime Minister and a communicator, which none of the leadership candidates dare address the character of Gordon Brown, than it actually had to do with immigration. Yeah. And I think uh, that's, in some senses, in the political debate, that's coming skewed because none of the leadership contenders are prepared to actually uh, address that fact. I think you're right. And if you look across Europe, immigration is a much more poisonous issue than it is in Britain. And British people have always been famous for their tolerance. And to an extent, I think that's true. So the BNP didn't win huge numbers of votes. And Labour actually gained Rochdale from the Liberal Democrats. Yeah. And (laughs) Labour won in areas of high immigration where there is pressure on services and housing and so on. So it's a much more complicated picture. And the worry is that rather than dealing with the kind of core issues about the nature of our community, and housing and welfare and the quality of jobs. Labour's just now saying, oh, it was all because we talked about immigration or we were too soft or we were op- opened our doors to Europe too early. So no one's really learning the lessons properly. We're going to talk about what the government plans to do, but we'll start with John Cruddus again from Dagenham. I think, strangely, the coalition's probably got a year of space to try and rebuild a coalition policy around immigration, not least because the numbers are coming down quite dramatically. Their notion of a cap is a pretty elusive sort of policy that they can probably define in a fairly creative way to be a bit of a moving target. Um, They'll probably get some independent report or analysis of the uh, level of the cap, which is pretty close to the level of non-European migration anyway. So I think they'll try and take this thing out of this politically because um, the points-based system, the systemic changes that Labour introduced are kicking in, are actually they are more transparent and effective in terms of managing the system and the Home Office and the border agencies. So they've probably got more latitude than we assume they have. Um, At the same time, I assume that the amnesty issue will disappear, but the regularisation of long-stay or legacy cases will continue. Um, So in effect, you might well have an amnesty by stealth, if you want. So I think they're quite fortunate in terms of the policy framework in that there's a route through this which will reconcile both parties because the climate is quite positive for them to shape a different third way if you want. Alan, what John's talking about there is kind of an immigration policy that's daily mail and rhetoric but new labour and practice. Yeah, I think he's right in that sense. We've already seen the announcement of the proposals for the cap, first of all temporary cap coming in on July 16th which uh, is a cap on what they call Tier 1 and 2 in the points-based system, which means the most highly skilled and skilled workers from outside Europe. And what's being proposed is that there should be a limit of, uh, I think it's 23,000 in total, on the number of people who come through those two routes. But in the face of a big revolt from the business community, it has been decided to exempt from that cap what's called intra-company transfers. This is multinationals, companies moving staff from one part of the world to the other, uh, which business warned that if they close that, that part of the route down, it could start to hit Britain's reputation as a global hub in the global economy. So they've exempted from the temporary cap intra-company transfers. Now, they actually account for 45%, nearly half of all the jobs covered 
by the cap. So you've got a very flexible cap in that it's a cap, a limit, but it doesn't cover half the jobs which are supposed to be covered by the limit. And the debate now going on, John Crudders mentioned an independent advisory body setting the limit, Migration Advisory Committee, which is chaired by a man called Professor David Metcalf, who's at the LSE, Labour economist, and he's now trying to decide whether those intercompany transfers he's arguing have to be within inside this limit, otherwise it's a fairly sort of pointless limit. The debate then starts to go, how, what level do you set the, the cap at? Now, the Conservatives have said the cap should limit non-European economic migration to tens of thousands rather than hundreds of thousands. That's net migration. We already know that net migration is 145,000 and falling. So the question, the debate inside the Conservative Party that's now got underway is whether it should just sort of be brought down to about 90,000 or they should cut much, much deeper and go to about 40,000, 50,000. And David Cameron in the election campaign talked about 40,000, 50,000, but they've, they've, they've gone back from that now. If they go just below 90,000, they can probably do it through the limit on tier one and two with possible exceptions for the intercompany transfers, which would be regarded, I think, as a very business-friendly kind of limit. So is that your prediction, that you think they'll stay around these kind of current levels? Well, I think so, yes. I think it'll be quite flexible. If they want to go deeper, then they've got to go into other categories because that's where the numbers are. The big numbers are in, uh, first of all, family reunion migration, which is non-economic, not necessarily, which is politically far more sensitive in terms of stopping people from India, Pakistan coming to join their families. Or the other really big one is overseas students, and that's where the big question mark lies, I think. Gary, the Tory true blues aren't going to stand for that kind of policy, are they? They They want to see action, don't they? They want to hear rhetoric, I think. I I think much more than uh, wanting to see anything. Because it's very difficult to actually uh, see a lot of this stuff once the numbers kind of kick in. And really, the thing that the business community is afraid of is precisely what has happened in America, which is the American business is howling and screaming about restrictive immigration policies, uh, stopping them importing kind of um, high-level labour and great academics and uh, promising students and all of that kind of thing. And increasingly America is being seen as a fairly, if not hostile, then less welcoming place for uh, foreign business. And in a kind of globalised world, that's a problem. But I think it's also true that the conversation about immigration, the national conversation that we've been having in this country, is about stopping a certain kind of person travelling. It's about stopping poor people travelling, by and large. So the idea that really wealthy people might come here and settle and uh, bring their wealth is not really understood in this conversation as, as, as a problem. But as Alan pointed out earlier, there are large numbers of very wealthy people who, uh, who do travel here. So if we're only working on the numbers... That's going to be a problem. And the true blue Tories, they like rich people from wherever they're from. So, um, so long as they're rich, I don't think it's going to be a problem. Jane, last word to you. Do you think we'll look back on the last five, six years as being a kind of an aberration, like a particular episode in the history of immigration, which is now over? No, I don't. I mean, there's very important historical continuities anyway. This story's been going on for hundreds of years. It's not that different. It's just the scale of the immigration. And it's really the EU succession that's led to that huge leap that Alan was talking about quite some time ago in terms of 2004, the accession states coming in, the numbers really shot up, and it was across the country that that was experienced. So that was what was different, the accession to the EU and the impacts that's Mm. had. The other stuff has really got very long historical continuities. And I think actually the last thing that the Conservative politicians and their business backers want is to stop the, the movement of talent 
If you look at all the rhetoric in the business manuals, in the policy statements of all governments across the, the world, they, they're talking about att- attracting talent. They want the brightest and the best to come to Britain. It's in Theresa May's statement about the cap. No one wants to stop the tier ones and twos, in actual fact, coming to Britain. And in many ways, Gary's right, it's about rhetoric at the moment. And the tide is moving in the right direction. So the places like Peterborough, Western Supermare, Devon, those numbers are going to come down because that's what's happening with the recession. But the trend will continue. Yeah, we're part of the if we, if we remain part of the EU, it's going to be inevitable that people are coming and going. Well, that's it for this week's podcast. My thanks to my guests, Jane Wills, Alan Travis and Gary Young. The producer was Ian Chambers. My name's Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.